0: So we are still making our way through number 303, but I bet today will be our last day on it. So, do we have any questions or thoughts that are left over from previous weeks? Okay. Um, This is Master talking about intuition and the organization. This is now about intuition. Master says, when intuition develops, the master said, you don't always know why you say and do things differently. But when you are in that divine flow, you are in tune with truth, then everything goes as it should. The other day, he added, I invited some people to dinner. Come on Wednesday, I said to them. They replied, Thursday would be better. I didn't try to dissuade them, but as it happened on Thursday, it rained heavily. More and more, as one lived with Master, one learned to listen to even the nuances of his speech, for though he rarely insisted on anything, his mere hint, if one listened, was often a sufficient warning. There are several wonderful points in here. Um, I don't remember when I was talking about this. I hope it wasn't already in here. But when he says, when intuition develops, you don't always know why you say things. When I watched Swamiji function, which was a reflection of this, from from the perspective in which I live, you imagine that somebody of expanded consciousness calculates what they say. Because that's sort of how we do things. We figure things out we figure sort of how this is going to work and that's going to work work. and if I can do this, then that'll happen and if I say that and, you know, there's always just this sort of past, present and future that we're working with. So when you see someone and the way Swami talks about Master and the way I watch Swami work, where he always seemed to be saying something that catalyzed the next event or his response was exactly right or a suggestion led to all these other things, the first explanation that the ordinary mind comes up with is that he's thinking it all through step by step. And and you, that's where you lead to... Uh, you. That's where you develop these kind of Machiavellian ideas about anybody who's a strong leader is Machiavellian in the way he thinks things out. When Ananda was trying to incorporate as a California city, which is a project I worked on in the early 80s, and our all of our immediate neighbors were quite... Upset about that effort, they basically decided if, if Swami Kriyananda was a strong leader, he was an abusive leader. It was like in their mind, strong meant abusive, and they just there was no, there was absolutely no way that they, that I could disabuse them of that thought. If he had strength, then he was he was misusing it. They and they they saw everything he did as all this plan, this sort of, and they they had no idea how spontaneous his own remarks were, and how surprised he sometimes was. Not surprised in the sense of incredulous, but just it it would come to him and he would do it. And I remember in a certain situation he was advocating a, a certain uh, course of action for someone. And he remarked afterwards, he said, so-and-so is finding it difficult. And then he said, I'm accustomed to following my heart. And just trusting that it will all work out. But this person is not used to it. So a suggestion that doesn't come with all this intellectual explanation. You know, this other person was finding very hard to embrace. And Swami was just used to it. If it comes in that certain way, we just follow it and that's how it'll work. When I worked with him, not on the incorporation, but on the project we did before where we did a little bit of political activism in the county in order to get some county get a certain county official fired <laughs> because she was incompetent. She was causing us a lot of grief. He he conducted this whole campaign, and I was kind of his uh, front man on it. And it all sort of in, unfolded in a way that just worked out beautifully. Basically, he created a whole controversy anonymously, and then Ananda stepped in and saved the day. <laughs> it, uh, he called it a tempest in a teapot, but I was quite impressed. But afterwards I asked him, I said, did you know how this was going to work out? And he said, no, not really. He said, but I knew if I just went a step at a time it would unfold as it was supposed to. And it took me many years to understand that his intuition was so in the now, that's how he did it. And that's what Master said. Master's saying exactly here, so Swami's, I saw it, illustrated, you don't always know why you say and do things in a certain way. Now, think about how courageous and confident you have to be, and and sensitive to the feeling of things. And over time, even more or less ordinary people like us can develop that kind of intuition where you can just tell that you're not sure why, but this is going to work out. Um, And it it does if you follow that feeling and follow it correctly. Now, working out doesn't always mean that it works out well. (laughs) It just means that it works out. (laughs) I've often advised people, oh, don't worry, something will happen. And they say, oh, you mean it's going to be good? No, I didn't say that. I just said something will happen. Something always happens. (laughs) And so sometimes something happens. And then later you see, well, that was just the way it was going to be. Um, It's very important to realize that because otherwise we try too hard to protect ourselves with too much thought. I'm not making that clear, but you understand what I mean. This little story about I invited them to come on Wednesday and they said to come on Thursday... I heard this story about, uh, I may have told this recently, but I'll tell it again. Uh, after Swami Dirananda left Master, in whenever that was, in the 30s or so, he became a PhD professor at the University of Michigan or something like that, and he got involved in brain research. And because he was Indian, he, he took his scientists and their brain-measuring machines to India, and he made an appointment with Swami Purushottamananda. Who was a very advanced soul? He lived at Vasishta Guha, the cave above Rishikesh, for a while. And uh, let's see, they told him that they wanted to come to see him on a Tuesday. He said Tuesday is not convenient; Wednesday would be better. They said Tuesday is the day that works for us. He said, "All right, come on Tuesday." So they came on Tuesday, and none of their machines worked at all. <laughs> they couldn't; they simply couldn't get the machines to work, and they had to go home without anything. So they returned on Wednesday, and they hooked him up to all these electrodes. And uh, they, they tried to measure him, and he had no brainwaves, none at all, then nothing registered on their machines. And they were just completely disconcerted. He said, oh, you want brainwaves. So then he just made brainwaves, you know, <laughs> just left, right, up, down, you know, absolutely completely outside of anything that they wanted. And then he just turned to him and he said, you people are just children. <laughs> And that was the end of the whole thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're you're just toy. These are toys. But I mean but it was the same thing. Now there's two factors that are relevant there. When Master said come on, on Wednesday, he meant to come on Wednesday. He had a reason for it. When Purushottama said come on, on Wednesday, he, he meant Wednesday. Even if he didn't himself he wasn't calculating. He just, for some reason, knew their machines wouldn't work on Tuesday. It wasn't like they came and he punished them. That would have been petty-minded. It's just, it wasn't going to work on Tuesday, and it would work on Wednesday, and just somehow some part of him knew it. But the other part, which is even much more important, you have to realize, in both these cases, we're not living with a living master right now, but it's still important to know that he didn't insist. Purushottama didn't insist. Master didn't insist. I never saw Swami insist. They just hint. And and one of the things that has happened with Yogananda's image over the years is that the organization he founded has gradually created this stern disciplinarian. And even sometimes people will say things to me about the way Swami behaves. When I wrote the first book about him, afterwards, someone, when they read it, they said, well, you never talk about the way Swami blasts people, he said, like the person said to me. I I actually sat and I thought, I said, well, I just can't remember him ever doing that. I mean, I can remember on occasion he spoke strongly, but I said to Swami that so-and-so objected to the book because they say I I didn't represent this side of you. And he just said, I never blast people like that. I said, well, this person says you do. Oh, he says, if your ego resists, that's what it feels like. Which I thought, no, that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? But that doesn't mean he's actually doing it. I mean, of course, there are times when he said Master would pretend anger. And I remember on one occasion, there was this man who was very difficult to get along with. And finally he did something, and Swami said that, you know, he said... You know, I really need to speak to him. It's just not right for him to go on this way. So we all got real happy, thinking we were all going to through Swami, you know, get our revenge. Swami so actually spoke to the man ten years later, and I. It was. It, he. He was. It wasn't that he forgot it. He was just waiting for the right moment, which finally came ten years later, in the middle of a choir rehearsal, just as they were about. To start singing, and whatever the man did, it was just the right moment, and Swami spoke extremely sternly to him, so sternly that the guitar player became very agitated about it and kept trying to start the rehearsal. so he starts playing the guitar, and Swami starts talking louder. <laughs> the other man starts talking louder, so these two voices are going this, other guy 's frantically playing the guitar, trying to get everybody to sing and stop but it's really crazy that 's the closest I've ever seen that I would call that. Because, with few exceptions, and, and I, if somebody's listening to this and comes and wants to tell me about how Sternswami was with them, it's, it's not that he never spoke strongly to me. He, spoke, he said to me once just a single line that actually made me stop breathing. I mean, not in a positive way. It, just, it was just a single line, but it, there was so much fact in it that I really couldn't breathe. I had to walk out of the room I, I thought I would faint. So, yeah, I definitely felt blasted, but I could still tell that he just said something very simple to me, but it was so true. Just, you know, went in right like that. When, in another occasion, when Swami was sitting and speaking to me, he said something so forcefully that for many years, I, re- I remembered it as him standing up and reaching out to me, speaking like that. But I thought about it later, and I thought, I don't think that actually happened because it just was completely uncharacteristic, but that's how it felt. I felt him coming at me. It was when I said I need to, uh, this was like in 1971, I said, I think I need to improve my power of analysis. (laughs) He said, no! (laughs) That was when I felt he came out of his chair. And then very sweetly said, I think you need to develop devotion. (laughs) But it was like, just erase that thought. That's That was the force I felt was, do not go that direction. I was. I was just, if something is not working for you, you imagine if you do more of it, it'll work for you. You know, that the only problem is I'm not doing enough of it. Everyone is like that. We just, whatever direction we're going, we just want to keep going and it doesn't occur to us that the whole premise is wrong. I felt that with that he wanted, my feeling when that happened was he wanted to grab the whole thought and just expunge it from the ether you know, just get rid of it. It's like my, the the image that he came forward was. I think he just kind of reached out and just threw it away before it even had a chance to kind of land in the universe. My only excuse was I'd been there maybe two months, but I never forgot it. Um, so the the point the other point is that. What a master does is a master does not compel you into a new way of behaving. We have this thought in our mind. We have a very external idea about change. And we have a very external idea that is we want to mold our behavior, we want to discipline ourselves, we want to do these practices, we want to have these attitudes. And a great deal of it is, you know, we're kind of at war with ourselves, And we think if I can just get myself to do this, then everything will be different. And so we picture this disciplinarian who... And and we we sort of want that. We want somebody to make us different. And so we we project this, even this idea of a guru, we project this idea is that somebody's going to make us be different. And in a very strange way, we're we're actually looking for a shortcut in that. We're looking for someone who's going to make it happen for us. But a true master knows... That he's not making anything happen. What he's doing actually is awakening our. He's he's awakening our own higher vibration, so that our spontaneous reaction to life will be on a higher octave. And the very nature of that awakening cannot be created by a force imposed from the outside. It has to come from a, a, a natural realization. And for almost everyone, um, love works better because what happens then is we, we, we're not afraid and we're inspired. And of course, somebody who loves you can also be stern with you. And and Swami has been stern. I, I would not, it would be unfair to say that he wasn't. But if he has to be too stern, that means he's having to persuade and I never saw him try to persuade someone. That's the point that I really mean. If you if you were interested, he would respond. But if he had to, to argue with you and force you to understand and, and fight against your delusions, it just wasn't time. It just wasn't time. Because if you got it that way, then you would just go find another reason to go around it. And, and even in Autobiography of a Yogi... And we think of Sri Yukteswar as having this very stern demeanor because of the stories that Master himself tells. But there's also that story about Kumar, the young man that Sri Yukteswar was so attached to. And Kumar wanted to go back to his village, and Sri Yukteswar knew that if he did, he would fall in with bad companions, and he would develop habits that would make him unsuitable for the ashram life. So... Kumar was determined to go back into the village, and the autobiography says, despite the master's gentle hints. I mean, his whole spiritual life was at stake. You would have imagined that Sri Yukteswar would have blasted him. Don't go, don't be a fool. But he didn't, he just hinted. When Kumar ignored it, Sri Yukteswar let him go. Just like that. And that's really what it is, because if we don't open to it, then it's pointless. You know, it's just very simply, it's pointless. Through the many years of living here and working with people, it's like, you would like people to have certain attitudes sometimes, but if they don't, they don't. You know, they just don't. And and then you have to just start from where you are and think about how to educate or inspire. Swamiji said the, the The mark of a true leader is not his ability to force people to go along with him. It's to change their consciousness so they understand what it is he's trying to accomplish. And when when leadership breaks down, he said, it's a breakdown of communication or consciousness. And sometimes it can't be overcome. But sometimes it can be by enough education and, you know, just, it's all about... and, And when intentions are thwarted, You know, I have to stop and think, well, you know, we have to start over and find a place in which people understand that this is a good idea. If we're trying to raise money or get volunteers or whatever it might be, if people are not forthcoming, more sternness is not going to get them to be forthcoming. Or if it does, it's not going to help. Otherwise, what happens is what a woman told me when she was in a stricter monastery. She said, I saw who they wanted me to be and I just became that person. But that's not transformation. That's hypocrisy. And and what's the good of that? Masters know that just sooner or later you'll rebel against it. What Swami said somewhere else is, you know, if if I impose an attitude from the outside, it it just it it won't help people. So he wouldn't give advice. I wrote this in the book that will soon be published. His advice was often not as straightforward as it seemed, even when he would say something direct. Because he was trying to bring us at times, I mean, at one point I was working when I was trying to write and wasn't able to, he finally just said, "Well, this just isn't working. Why don't you give it up?" I said, "No, <laughs> I don't want to give it up but i but it was he pushed me, you know and and he was testing to see whether I really had embraced it as my own or whether I was just trying to do what he said. And it was actually interesting to me to hear me say that because I had started it because he told me. But then when he gave me permission to quit, so to speak, I, I knew that wasn't what he really wanted. Right? I knew that wasn't what I wanted, but I didn't know that until I suddenly had the choice. On another occasion just of this sort of thing, at the very beginning of Palo Alto, of our, my tenure here in 1987, Swami Kriyananda wrote... The Festival of Light, and then he wrote a commentary for the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. It's the book, you know, there's actually a, a longer and a shorter version, Rays of the One Light and Rays of the Same Light. I can't get confused. The first set of commentaries he wrote, he wrote a whole commentary for the Bible and a whole commentary for the Gita, both of which were longer than what we presently read, and we had to read both of them, had to read both of them. You hear my attitude. We had to read both of them. Some of them were really long. You know, it could be 15 minutes of reading, which is really a lot of reading in the middle of a Sunday service. I was not the only one, but I was one of the most rebellious ones against those readings. The readings that weren't inherently bad, they were just too long. And there was this constant... I was constantly sort of at war with Swami about those readings. And we were all, a lot of us, just starting to our centers and starting outside of Ananda. A lot of things were new. But my rebellion against them was pretty intense. And finally there was... He was visiting us here in Palo Alto and a number of other... Uh, he used to bring about five or six people. The the main leaders from Ananda village would usually come with him when he came here and they would all meet in our house. It was kind of like a an off-site meeting place where nobody had any responsibilities. So they were all there and we were talking about these readings. And I don't... Well, the details are just too gory and uninteresting. Also, I'll leave them out. But the end of it all is he said to the whole group, Asha doesn't have to do the readings if she doesn't want to. And and someone said, well, then so-and-so's not going to want to do them either. He said, no, they have to do them, but Asha's earned the right not to do them. He said it like that. So, I, like, I got what I wanted. So, I just... But, it, no, no, there it was. So I didn't have to do them anymore. And, uh... I don't know whether it was that same afternoon or the next morning, but I was in the kitchen and I had some garbage in my hand and we had this step-on garbage, you know, where you step on and the lid flips up. I stepped on it and the lid flipped up. I mean, the garbage was symbolic somehow, and I'm about to put this garbage in. It, it really came to me very strongly, if you accept this, you will get so out of tune that you will leave the path. Wow, it came to me like that. You know, it's like I was having a hissy fit and he was just going to let me have it and see what I did. And I just dropped the garbage in and slammed the lid and I said, Swami, of course I'm going to do the readings. He never said anything to me after that. He never said, good girl or anything like that, but it really was. It was like, are you going to cooperate with what I have in mind or not? But he gave me the freedom so that I could choose where I was going to go with it. And that's much more common than just, this is how it's supposed to be. It's a wholly different way of being on the spiritual path. And it's true even now. You know, it's it's like people will suggest things to you and it behooves us to listen to each other. But, you know, in the end it has to be our own spontaneous feeling for a very simple reason. Otherwise it won't last. Or you can not you even do it for several incarnations but suppressed energy sooner or later finds a way to express itself. And usually if it's just suppressed and suppressed means... I still want it, I think it's good for me, but you've told me I can't have it, so now I can't have it. Which is quite different than saying, oh, I wish it weren't so, but I know it's the right thing, I have to do it. I mean, you cannot like it. I don't like it a lot of time. I didn't enjoy the readings. (laughs) They were too long. And about several years later, what happened was, in fact, he wrote the, the commentary on the Rubaiyat, And it was so beautiful and it was so new that we shifted over and we read the Rubaiyat for Sunday service. You all remember that. And then we finished a year of it and then we did a second, we did it all over again for a second year. Then we're approaching the end of the second year and we're going to have to go back to those other readings. And what Swami describes, he said, you know, there were just fax machines. We didn't have email then. He, He claims to have received a damp, tear-stained facts from me. <laughs> he always spoke of the damp, tear-stained facts I got from Asha pleading with me not to, not to force those readings on her again. <laughs> and so then he wrote the shorter one. And, and we were finally... And I got, I got lots of accolades from my fellow devotees because on <laughs> nobody... I was just the loudest mouth but everybody thought they were too long. Okay, but all of that is, you get an opportunity. And what I also actually want you to understand, when Swami was alive, it was more dramatic. But it's still exactly the same. Because time and space and death are no obstacle to divine guidance if you're receptive. You know, so if, if we are still really serious about trying to be in tune with God, God will find a way to speak to us. He will either speak to us in our own hearts, through circumstances, or through our gurus, if we're listening. You know, if, but if we're listening, it, he's talking to us all the time. But in the same way, it's not always crystal clear. You always have to you have to stand back for a minute, and just you know, ask yourself what's really going on here. You know, what's really going on? What am I really feeling? And you get you get good at it. You get so that you can just sense something's off. And you don't, often you don't even know why, but something's off. And then you have to stop and ask, you know, where did, I, I, I tend to roll back my day, you know, when did it go off? At what point? And almost always, well, it's when I had that thought, when I said that thing, when I neglected to take care of that task, whatever it might have been. And, you know, I just always kind of try to roll it back and start over. Does that make sense? But it's always going to be a hint. Well, sometimes not. Sometimes you literally get hit by a truck, but it's even then. Okay? Any comments or thoughts? Number 304. And when people talk to you about any spiritual master and make him really tough, um, toss a little grain of salt onto that. Because a true master loves you. Even if he's stern, what you actually receive is love and encouragement. In this book it was, Swami said... The master was always encouraging. Even when he scolded us sternly, you always felt encouraged. Satan makes you feel discouraged. So whenever you feel discouraged, you know it's not God speaking to you. You know the, It's not a question whether the advice is right or wrong, but you're tuned into the wrong side whenever you feel discouraged. What would it serve the master to discourage us? To correct us, yes, but in such a way that we always feel, I can do it. He believes in me. I can do it. And if you begin to think, no, I can't, no, I can't, it's not God's will. It's not God speaking to you. It's not Guru speaking to you. It's somehow we've gotten into the dark side. That's what he does. He succeeds in making us feel that we can't do it. That's all. So, I mean, the masters are very careful not to push us to that point. Because if we lose hope, we lose everything. As long as we have hope, it really doesn't matter what a mess we've made. And believe me, we've all made lots of them but it doesn't make any difference as long as we know. I was talking to someone about reincarnation this morning and about, she said to me, let me think how she put it. She thought, she, she raised the question that reincarnation is kind of an excuse. I said, oh, heavens no, it's just the opposite. Far from excusing us, it gives us absolute hope that we will get it right. You know, it's not like a free pass. It's just the opposite. It's, well, I haven't gotten it right now, but I will. And and that's, I mean, for me, reincarnation is just marvelously helpful. And it's also helpful from the other side, which is, if I don't get it right, I'm going to have to do it again. So it, far from giving us any kind of an excuse, it just absolutely locks you in. You either face it now, or you face it now later. Like, where's the advantage in that? And I'm not enjoying it now, so I suspect I won't enjoy it now later either. You know, in fact, it's even worse because I have the memory of this one. But if I have messed up really big, I'll get another chance to fix it. Nothing is ever broken. It's just not finished. And really think about that. These things are so important because the greatest enemy on the spiritual path is discouragement, which tempts you to quit. Because if you don't quit, you will succeed. But if you quit, you will succeed. But you'll just suffer longer, which seems tiresome. All right, 304. In this way, the Master said, one can develop intuition. After meditation, sit still for a long time, enjoying the inner peace. As you don't cook your food and then run off without eating it, but rather sit down and enjoy it, so also the meditation techniques help to prepare the mind. But after them, sit quietly, enjoying the meal you've prepared. Many people meditate till they feel a touch of peace, but jump up then and leave their meditation for their activities. That's all right if you have important work waiting for you, for it is always better to meditate before any activity, that you may feel at least some peace as you work. Whenever possible, however, sit for a long time after your practice of the techniques. That is when the deepest enjoyment comes. Intuition is developed by continuously deepening that enjoyment, and later on, by holding on to its calm after-effect. That's just a really beautiful, uh, encouraging statement, isn't it? And of course, some days are better than others. (laughs) But the more we can at least hold that in our mind, you know, that just take the time to enjoy your meditation is partly what he's saying. Instead of always seeing our meditation as just a duty or a battle. I was speaking to someone who has a lot of trouble meditating and I was just saying, the person was saying to me, that despite everything, they know that God loves them and they love God. I said, well, make your meditation just sit there and sitting there contemplating that wonderful fact. You know, sometimes we don't want to don't make it too complicated. Just isn't it nice that I live in a free country where I can just put the pictures of the masters out here? Isn't it nice that I've been brought to a teaching where I can have this relationship? it, 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 it that the art of meditation, the art of the spiritual path, is to find a way that works for you. And instead of like setting ourselves some kind of a goal that we're not able always to fulfill... Uh, I mean, Swami, at one point, you know, you set yourself a bottom line that you know you can always do. And then you always do that. And then when, you, when you're at ease about what you're doing, you often find it's a lot easier to add more. And so it's, it's, this is the science is what you're supposed to do, but the techniques are and the art is how to get yourself to do them. <laughs> Just like that. And that's what real super-consciousness is, is to always think, oh, there's a solution here. If I'm too busy or too restless or too anxious, I just, I find something that works. And the more we can just be, you know, that, when, when there's nothing happening at all, that's when the spirit can come in and fill the space. So Master's always talking about this as a very important part of it. Yes? Or it, it, not only will it help you get through it, but... Um that very same attitude can help you go deeper. Yes, of course. Relaxation is everything. Yeah. It's, it's all a mystery in a sense. I don't have any real good answers. I've gotten younger and younger. <laughs> you know, somebody was quoting me Bob Dylan's song, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. <laughs> I had forgotten that song even though a hundred years ago I knew it. But that's exactly true. It's a very, very poetically wise way to say it. Okay, number 305. A visitor who had read Autobiography of a Yogi, though he wasn't an SRF member, came to converse with the master. I took notes at their meeting. May I ask, out of curiosity, the visitor said, why, although you call this a church of all religions, you place so much emphasis on the Christian religion? Actually, the master replied, we place emphasis on two of the world's great religions, Christianity and Hinduism. We concentrate especially on the teachings, on the teachings rather than on the religions of Jesus Christ and of Krishna. Important distinction between the teachings and what became religion. I do so because this was the wish of Babaji. He and Jesus together sent this mission. They are the first in our line of gurus The wish of them all was expressed to me by Babaji, particularly to interpret the Christian New Testament and the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, and thereby to demonstrate the essential oneness of the truths of both religions. And this is an extremely important understanding of what Master's Mission really is and how it it really develops. Um, Some people, I mean, we have put in this temple the symbols of all these world religions, even though we reference... Very few of them, except for Christianity and self-realization, it was a it was a conscious decision to try to think of a way that we could immediately create a sense of universality when what you actually see when you come in is the altar with all the gurus on it. So it's it's hard for people to believe that this is a temple dedicated to the saints and sages of all religions when there's one line of gurus on the altar and that we're not sectarian because we're disciples we have a particular practice so we had the thought in our minds that if we put the symbols of the religions people would at least have to try to sort of figure out how all that went together but we have never or rarely but virtually never really done anything that actually represents any of these religions in the, in the terms of the outward rituals, the outward prayers. I mean, we've had a few things more recently. But it's not at all part of our liturgy or part of our teaching, as it is in some places. They'll have services where this week it'll be, they'll do Jewish prayers, and next week they'll do Native American rituals, and then the following week they'll do Buddhist things as, as an attempt I mean as an expression of the universality of it all but what master is showing is 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 that the the essential principles that became the religions um are all the same and once he proves that point with hinduism and christianity by emphasizing the teachings of of krishna and jesus which are considered to be the polar opposites east and west you know in the in the point of view once you can show that the principles are the same, from that understanding, you can extend out into all the religions that are based on Sanat and Dharma. Swami, at one point, he was actually, this was when he was actually writing the book, The Revelations of Christ, and he had a friend who uh, was an Episcopal priest. That man has since passed away from this planet, but um, the man was a little, he became a little defensive at a certain point, and a, a little defensive of Christianity and a little defensive against self-realization, but Swami still sent the manuscript to him. And the man argued against Swami's uh, generalizations. And Swami's answer was very interesting. He said, I do not generalize. He said, I describe the the essence of something. And to describe the essential truth of something is quite different than a generalization. Because a generalization just kind of sweeps everything in. But when you get back and get the essential truth, you're standing at the point where everything can be understood. Swami made a very interesting comment once. He said, you know, so often when he would lecture, people would tell him afterwards that he answered their questions or they'd been just wondering about something and what he said, you know, was exactly to the point. And Swami's answer was very interesting. He said, the more central the truth, the more everybody finds a specific application for it. And she said, it wasn't so much that he was answering their questions is that what he was saying was the answer to all questions. And so whatever question had been in your mind, you suddenly felt like it was answered because you'd gone back to the core of it. So Jesus and Babaji, you know, this is what Babaji wanted us to do. And, Swam, and, and Master's answer to that question is also interesting. This was the will of Babaji. It's like a Master was saying, I'm not here on my own mission, this is a job I was given, and this is what they wanted me to do. It's he writes an autobiography of a yogi, Jesus and Babaji as the as the spiritual figures of East and West are very concerned about the direction of modern civilization, the sectarianism, the the race hatred, the tendency toward violence, the religious bigotry, and they have planned the salvation of this age. I mean. Those are very, very strong words. And they're just stated there just like that. So when Babaji sends Master here, which is what we talk about every week in the Festival of Light, Jesus appeared to the great Master Babaji. The lights on the high altar of my church grow dim. We need to reawaken self-realization, inner communion, and thus a new ray of light descended to earth. This is how Master came. So Jesus appears to Babaji. Babaji initiates Lahiri. Lahiri trains Sri Yukteswar. Sri Yukteswar trains Master. And Master comes to America. And the whole lineage goes like that. And then so Master's here and he's commissioned by Babaji to do this. He's not making it up. This is Jesus and Babaji together have planned the salvation of this age. And it is to to overcome all of this sectarianism by showing the essential oneness. And it's sufficient to show it with Christianity and, and Krishna and Jesus, because once you understand that, then you can open any other scripture and you can see it's all the same. Judaism was a precursor of uh, Christianity. Buddhism is an expression of Hinduism that just later broke off. I mean, Christianity was Judaism and then became Christianity when the Jews didn't want it. <laughs> It was only after the Jews didn't want it that, that it became something else. The irony of early Christianity is it was the Jews persecuting the Christians, not the Christians persecuting the Jews. I mean, they just basically threw them out. And they didn't have anything to do, so they went uh, off and did something else. You know, the church, uh, religious history is very different than people's ideas. So, you know, we... Let me think. I had a very, I've had a very amusing moment here once when we did the Festival of Light, and one of the lines in the Festival of Light is, you know, you got, you, the chosen people have always been those of every race and, race and nation who with deep love chose thee. And that, of course, is a direct reference to to the Jewish tradition that the Jews are the chosen people. Um, now, there's a lot of corrections to a lot of Christianity in the... Uh, in the Festival of Light as well, uh, it, it escapes me right at the moment. But you know what is the only Son of God, and you know what? Why? What does it mean to the descent of an avatar? I mean, there's a whole lot of corrections to basic Christian Christian teachings. But there once when, on one Sunday morning, there was an Israeli here who was really offended, super offended by that. And so when I got outside, they sort of—I think it was a woman. She sort of stirred up her courage and came to me and just told me how offended she was by what I said. And this is one of these moments where intuition comes to you. Oh, I said, we're also offending the Hindus and the Christians. You just don't get the references. <laughs> and She just looked so shocked. But then, what could she say? I said, it's all being corrected. It's all being reinterpreted in another way. People are so anxious to feel offended and that was even partly the name of this question. You call yourself all religions, but you're just Judaism. I mean, you're just Christianity and Hinduism. And Master wasn't going to be offended. Partly, I think that's why he just said it was the will of Babaji. Which is, he, he was going to just cut through the whole argument. But, but once, you sh- once you get what any Master is saying, you can read all scripture and understand it. And that's how Sri Yukteswar trained Yogananda he spent a long time teaching him the key to scripture and then said, you know, they, they spent a, a long time studying a very little about the Gita. But then at a certain point Sri Yukteswar says, well, now you understand scripture. And Master said after that he could open any scripture and he could immediately understand it because he, he stepped back into the essential. The, that's why Master said, self-realization has come to unite all religions. And Swami actually had a dispute with Daya Manta, who was the president of Self-Realization Fellowship, because she seemed to interpret that to mean that the church of the big mega church of the future would be Self-Realization Fellowship, which Swami found incomprehensible as, as an explanation. So he said he couldn't possibly have meant that. What he meant was that people will begin to understand that the principle behind all religions is the expansion of consciousness by raising the energy in the spine and becoming attuned to a higher reality. And then everyone will begin to read all scriptures and understand, oh, they're all saying the same thing. The goal is the same. The outward practices are different, but the inner way way of awakening, Swami eventually called it, has to be the same. And then why would you fight? What people try to do now is they try to say, well, I respect the way you do this, and I respect the way you do that, and and so we do a little of your ritual and a little of this one. But they, they conflict. That, you know, they just aren't the same. But if you, if you realize, interiorize your consciousness, raise your consciousness, attune yourself to the infinite, free yourself from attachment of this world, distance yourself from egoic involvement, open your heart in love and compassion, that's what it's all about. That's what everybody's doing. And, and then we f- we'll find, just like I was saying, you can't suppress yourself... We can't create peace in this world by telling people to be nice. Because it won't work. We have to change people's consciousness so that they see unity and they understand from inside where my happiness comes from. Otherwise, it just, you push it down over here and it pops up over here. I mean, we live in crazy times. But thank you. We have an answer. All right. Any comments or questions? So then the same visitor, his visitor had, of course, implied something more also. Why didn't the master teach all religions? On other occasions, master answered this question also, that perhaps on the occasion I've described, he didn't feel inspired to go more deeply into the matter with this particular person. There must have been a certain challenge in the question. To complete his meaning, therefore, I should explain that he said also that his mission was to show the essence of all religions. Swami's going to now explain what I just said. He's going to say it better. It was never his purpose to compare various scriptural passages intellectually in order to show their similarity. In other words, he did not teach syncretism. Syncretism is a Catholic concept, or it, the Catholics use it, where it means you take a little of this religion and a little of that one, and you put it all together Um the bishop of Assisi decided that we were syncretists, which was not a compliment. Because we, he read our festival of light and saw that there was a little bit from here and there. And that's just utterly unacceptable to them. it's, It's not, as I said, a compliment. That would have meant merely skimming the surface of truth to be a syncretist. His mission and that of our line of gurus was to show the essential oneness of truth itself. That's the right point. If a if religion is saying that they will expand your consciousness to infinity, there can't be more than one of those. <laughs> you know, the Buddhists can't go to one infinity and the Jews to another. <laughs> Everybody has to go to the same one. So it's the truth itself, it's the principle itself that, that has to lead to the same place. It is at their deepest level that all religions are one. For this purpose, it suffices to show the oneness of only two of the great world religions— Outwardly, Hinduism and Christianity are very different, yet both have produced saints of high spiritual attainment. To know God is the eternal need of mankind. All people need to understand their need for personal, direct communion with God. Self-realization, the master predicted, will someday be recognized as the essential truth of every religion in the world. His prediction referred not to his organization, Self-Realization Fellowship, except insofar as that organization promoted this ideal. What he was referring to was the eternal principle itself of Self-Realization. This principle is destined in the present Dwapara Yuga to become accepted everywhere. The true purpose of religion, regardless of its diverse dogmas and credos, is union with God, the eternal self, pervading the whole universe. In another place, Swamiji gives special respect and reverence to Hinduism as the only religion that has maintained the principle of moksha, which is absolute final self-realization. The Buddhists go to nirvana. I don't think the Jews really go anywhere. And, And the Christians consider it blasphemous to imagine that you could be one with Christ. You know, even though Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect, But the Hindu tradition holds that thought of absolute transcendence. And among other reasons, that's why India remains, as Swami sometimes calls it, the guru of the world. Because all the other cultural traditions have brought that that down to the point where we don't understand anymore. And you see, it changes everything. Completely changes your relationship to this world too. And it makes everything you do in the world for a different purpose. It becomes a means to an end. That doesn't absolve you in any way from the necessity to apply ourselves with tremendous discipline commitment, but it makes the rules of engagement entirely different. So it's very important. So let's take a little bit of a break and then we'll come back from there. All right. Any comments or thoughts before we continue onward? During the break, I was asked the question, which is an interesting question, if Swami's intuition was always right and if Swami ever changed his mind. <laughs> you know, and I, I i was sort of just going through that just a little bit. Um, Swamiji said that Master often changed his mind. I mean, not, not randomly, not whimsically, but Master was quite willing to change his mind The phrase Swami used was, even if a person is infallible, it doesn't mean that their first comment is their last comment. (laughs) It can be a starting point. And it's not like they're... You know, it's the same thing as... Intuition is not this calculated thing that needs to be imposed. It's just, this is what seems right and this is what I say. He said, when Master was presented with new information or a new perspective, he would listen attentively and change. I often saw Swami change his mind. You know, he was emphatic about those those readings, and then later on he just simply did it differently. Um, And on many occasions, Swami would bring something up and he would see that people were not able to meet it. And so he he would not insist, or he would come up with an alternate plan, or so on like that. Also, a person like Swamiji who was in a leadership role and was defining Master's mission for a long time to come It wasn't always so important that everything that he suggested actually got fulfilled. Partly what he was doing is just what Master did, is just suggesting possibilities. Often Swamiji, when he would be trying to think about what to do about something, he would think if Master ever spoke about it, if Master ever, you know, spoken in a proving way about it. Just recently, Swamiji um, edited Master's book, Whispers from Eternity, and he did that... In, early, in the early 2000s. And uh, he said that... It, he, he witnessed a conversation between Master and Tara Mata who edited his books and Tara wanted to edit that book and she said something to Master about, you know, I would want to edit that. I, maybe I could edit that book. And Master's response was, oh, would you? Like that. And And Swami said, in retrospect, he felt that he didn't really want her to edit it because when she did, she ruined it. She completely ruined it because she didn't have any feeling for it. But when Swamiji felt, many, many years later, like 40 years later, the inspiration that he should edit it, he remembered that Master had been open to it being edited. And he felt that 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 conversation had taken place for his benefit, Swami's benefit, because their Master had shown that, yes, it, 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 it could be done. He didn't want Tara to do it, but he wanted Swami to do it, and that was the rather circuitous way of planting the thought into his mind. So when you say, was the intuition always right, that doesn't mean it was always fulfilled. Um, And I mean, I I remember in a particular uh, minister's meeting, uh, when Swami would have us come from our various centers and we'd have a few days' gathering... He really wanted us... Or it might have been a, what we called the Yoga Fellowship then, which was like life members of the Savika Order now. He talked to us about the really great... The importance of building a temple at Ananda Village. I believe it was 1980. Maybe it was 1986, but it was somewhere in there. 89, 86. And uh, he got us all quite enthusiastic and talked about this temple and what it would do and various things. And then over lunch people talked to him about how much money it would cost and how much money we didn't have and how much debt we were already carrying. Then he came back after lunch and told the whole group about the objections that had been raised. And I didn't realize until I was reviewing all this to write the book I just finished what I think actually was going on there. Because he wanted to say, no, we can. he wanted us to say, we can do it, we can do it. And we said, you yeah, know, I think that you're right. I think it would be really, really hard. And we just collapsed, just completely collapsed in the face of, of those obstacles. And so Swami suggested, well, maybe instead we could build a small chapel. You know, I mean, he just, he saw that we couldn't do it. But if we had been able to rise to what he was offering, then maybe we could. Now, 30 years later, we're actually doing it. And, you know, who, who can say what was right and what was wrong? But there it was, he put the thought, how important it was. Maybe he knew it would take 30 years before we could manifest it. Maybe we all just flunked a great big spiritual test at that time. You know, it's it's hard to say. And and also, for an intuition to be right doesn't mean that it has to manifest. It just means that it's the right thing to say right now. And that also, right, is a very relative word. Um, it, in In 1981, Swamiji felt... That the community was becoming quite distorted toward the monastic life, and that marriage and the householder life needed to have more dignity and respect. And at that time, he met a woman in Hawaii, and he they they formed a relationship. And he 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 gave up his monastic vows and took up the householder life. She flamed out in about nine months, and just it didn't work at all. And she went away after Swami had put out this huge thing about this new life that he was going to live and so on, when she vaporized, uh, he became very concerned that he had misunderstood Master's guidance. I was saying to Sharmila, I've never... I, I can't remember any other instance when he... His confidence and his intuition was so undermined as it was right then. And he just withdrew really far for quite a few weeks. He was just totally preoccupied because he had felt Master's guidance so strongly that if he was wrong, he just didn't know what he would do. I mean, how would he live after that? But then at a certain point, he just essentially surfaced from that. And he said, I knew what Ananda needed... I felt Master telling me that if I didn't set the example of a spiritual householder life, the community would never understand what we were here to do. And in this very short period of time, the entire community has been redirected in just the ways that I knew it was needed. And then he said, I naturally assumed that the relationship would last longer. But he said, that was my presumption. There had been no promise. He said, so he, then it was, he was sort of restored. It was like he had heard correctly, he just extrapolated one step that there was no particular guidance for. So it's, it's like, it's very subtle. That's why whenever I try to teach people about intuitive guidance, I said, well, you know, if everything works out right, that that, may mean, that could mean that your guidance is right. And if, it, if absolutely nothing works out, that means your guidance might be right. You know, there's just no way to know. You can't judge it from anything that shows you can only judge it from what it does for your consciousness. And it's it's very, very subtle. And we just have to keep working with it. And we have to be quite unafraid to fail. The other example of intuition is Swami Kriyananda was expelled from Self-Realization Fellowship in 1962. As a resu- it came about as a result of an effort he made in New Delhi when he was in charge of an uh, SRF's work, YSS, in India. And with Daya Mata's permission, he decided that he would try to build a temple in New Delhi dedicated to master with the belief at that time, and you know, this was just like what, uh, you know, a decade after Indian independence and the entire country revolved around the capital, which was New Delhi. And if we had, a, if he felt if there was a big temple to master in New Delhi, the whole country, it would change everything about SRF's work there. So, but at that time, Prime Minister Nehru controlled all the land use in Delhi, and, and ashrams and, priority and, and societies like that had absolutely no priority. And, and he, in order for him to get land to build a temple, Prime Minister Nehru had to say yes, personally. So, anyway, in the end, he got Prime Minister Nehru to say yes. It was an impossible task. And then SRF in Los Angeles decided this was extraordinary presumption on Kriyananda's part, and he was trying to set himself up as a new guru in India. And everything just cascaded in a nightmare a, a fracturing of his relationship with his gurubhais, which we should thank God for every day, because otherwise we wouldn't have Ananda. But going on from that, Swami told us this story many times over the years, because it was an important story, because he felt he had to explain how he came to be separated from his gurus and what what his justification was for go, going out on his own so to speak and one time when he finally told the story he said i didn't really feel master's guidance to go do the temple he said but i couldn't think of anything else to do and it seemed like a good idea and he said and i thought it would be a good test to see what happened if I tried to make something happen without that intuitive feeling? And, I mean, I had many responses to that, not the least of which is, what courage? You know, just, how will I ever know unless I try? So he tried, and he learned, and he understood that he had been correct. There was a certain feeling that wasn't there. He also felt later, he said, he also put added a subtlety to it later. Later he said, I feel like Master withheld his blessings um, in order to protect me from thinking that he was responsible for the great pain I suffered later. He said, the fact that I felt that I, he'd acted somewhat on his own without Master's blessing, he said, made it, separated the consequences of that action from his relationship to his guru, which was very important at the time, because when his, all his guru-bhais turned against him, all he had was his relationship with Master. But still, I mean, how many many of us have that much nerve to put that much energy behind anything, especially as an experiment? Yeah, very interesting. Now, I don't always feel that Swami always told me the whole story. He would just tell me enough of the story for it to be interesting. (laughs) All right, comments or questions? Number 306. I seem to remember, Swami says, that it was the same guest. I have his question and the master's answer in my notebook, but I've no other way of identifying him, who asked master the following question. I understand you have two classes of students, those who live in the world and those who live in the monasteries, renunciates. Which of these two ways do you consider the better and why? Good, better, and best the master replied, are determined by the depth of one's love for God. Outside of divine devotion, nothing else matters. Very important answer. If one is in a position to leave everything and live only for God, why not do so outwardly also? Whether married or single, the important thing is to love him deeply the monastic life is for those who have the pure desire to live only for god and who are also free of social entanglements you know it's a it, it's it's part of the transition from dwapara yuga to kali yuga that that the rigidity of the form of your spiritual life is not as important as it was deeper into kali yuga when mater, the material life was so dense, that it, it was just impossible to hold a high thought in the midst of it. Someone was talking about the extraordinary tapasya of St. Francis of Assisi, for example, barefoot in the snow, you know, just one thin garment. So I made a very interesting comment. He said ordinary life was so uncomfortable <laughs> that in order to do tapasya you had to go a lot farther. We think of it in terms of the comfort that we live now. But he said ordinary life was just one step in front of that. They didn't have central heating, they didn't have air conditioning, they didn't have hot water showers, you know, they didn't have cappuccino machines. It was like, it it was rugged. So he had to go beyond that in order for it to show. And also there was, as I understand, you know, in in earlier times there was just a greater need to repudiate the heaviness of matter and, and draw the lines that you would decide the life of women, was extremely confined, you know, with endless pregnancies and no uh, capacity to, to make your own decisions. You know, the, your father or your husband or your brothers ruled your life to a very large extent. And for women, if they really didn't want to just, you know, go down that road of, of among other things, childbearing, which was just utterly consuming... They just had to repudiate it all. It was very difficult to live in the midst of all of that and really even just have any time for God what to speak of the ability to live above it. I mean, women could be pregnant all the time. You know, it was just not a... So they would have to go off to the monasteries to do it if you really wanted that. But nowadays, life is much more comfortable. It's not, you know, it's not... It doesn't... We don't have to... We're not overwhelmed just with maintaining ourselves. Um it options for both men and women are much freer. Um as in, in this part of the world at least, you know, money is not that hard to obtain. It it's just not so heavy. It's not so heavy to be here. Everybody's roles are very lightly defined. And especially in America, there's no caste, there's no classes, you can just be whoever you're gonna be. It's just not form doesn't matter that much. And in higher ages the world and spirit are integrated, and that's that's the whole principle of Sanat and Dharma that, Swam, that Swami and Master were teaching about it being the essence of the religion. It's the other definition of Sanatana Dharma is simply that which is, which I love that. That's my favorite definition of that. It, and it's it's in the higher ages there is no such thing as religion. There's only life. Just life is, of course a spiritual expression. And in in the tradition of India, even still, even though everything is mushing together at the moment, it's, it's just understood. It's all consciousness. We're going to be born again until we attain God-realization. So we li- need to live in a certain way. What's happened to our whole world, which is why Babaji and Jesus are really worried, <laughs> is that all values except material values have, are just being... Uh, just randomly discarded, right, left, and center. Simultaneously, there's this enormous rebound of spiritual energy, of true spiritual energy, which is also happening. But the the power brokers of the world, the power, uh, the, the worldly power, is in the hands of stunningly materialistic minds and people, in which nothing matters but what you achieve. Even, I, I read a very just interesting editorial just talking about the United States, like, in one generation, you know, just very recently, who you were as a person was highly valued. You know, your integrity, your honesty, your your nobility, your selflessness, your charitableness, your devotion to God. Now, none of that. You, you people are, are, are never praised for that. They're praised for, for what they achieve outwardly in terms of money. Just think about it. And all of education is all focused toward these poor children building their resumes so they can get into the right high school, so they can get into the right college, so they can get the job with the right law firm. And it's just driving kids crazy. I I remember one year um, uh, letters to Santa appeared in the local newspaper. That was when the newspaper was still really paper. And there was just one letter and one little girl wrote, Dear Santa... I would like just a few days off. I'm only 12. I'm still a child. I mean, it was just like, oh my God. And but it's just like we're too busy. We have to keep, you know, they have to pick their sport and they have to start. It's just, it's absolutely nuts. And there's just very little. And it's it's like a it's a it's a runaway train. And and it takes a tremendous amount of intuition and courage for people, parents, to pull their children out of it, and for adults. To pull themselves out. It's not easy. It's not an easy time to be living. But, uh, let's see. But the other side of that is that we are moving into an age where people are concerned much more with energy than with form. And it's really, I mean, for example, even in the spiritual life, people used to belong to a denomination. You were a Lutheran or a Methodist, you'd go to a new city and you'd join the Methodist church, you'd join this church, and now people go if they go to church at all, they go where they feel inspired, and people will go around looking for a church that inspires them, and they don't they don't care what it's named if they care, if they go to church at all, which which most people don't, but it's just like the YMCA Young Men's Christian Association that's what YMCA means. They're open on Easter Sunday morning from nine to one. <laughs> it's like, wow. When did that happen? And you know, all the children's soccer games and everything. It's like Sunday morning, at least when I was a child, it used to at least be respected. Now it's just presumed. Of course, you can bring your kids to soccer at 9 a.m. on Sunday. What else would you be doing? Now, one thinks of that as bad, but it isn't really. It's that rigidity of form is breaking down, and so far, nothing better has replaced it. That's we're in it. we've lost one, and we haven't really gotten the magnetism of the other, but overall, in the end, it'll be better because there was a lot of hypocrisy going on. Garrison Keeler, his marvelous comedian's truth, he said going to ch- sitting in a church, thinking that you can sit in a church and become a Christian, that sitting in a church will make you into a Christian is like sitting in your garage and expecting to become an automobile. (laughs) But that's how people did think. And so therefore, if you were a monk, you were spiritual, and if a householder, you weren't. If you were really serious, you would be a monk. And so this man said, you have two kinds of students, don't you? Some Some live in the world, and some are in the monastery. Which is better? Good, better, best, Master said, how much you love God and that's what we have to say to ourselves too because we might not be choosing between householder and monastic or whatever it might be but we're choosing between a thousand different things good better best the only thing that matters is how much you love god in the end that's all that you know that's all that, that they ask think of your life review you know did you meet all your deadlines did you you know get the promotion did you get the house built who cares What was the joke? You know, they say in heaven the streets are paved with gold. So the angels, when some rich man tries to get into heaven carrying all these bars of gold, one of the angels says to the other, why would he bring pavement up here? (laughs) It's just so silly, but you see the perspective on it. (laughs) Well, any comments or questions before we call it a night? All right. So, that's it. Um, John always likes to know we went from 303 to 306. We finished 306. Okay, And we have two weeks off because the church is closed next week to fumigate it. And the following week is spiritual renewal week. So two weeks before we meet again sometime in August.